Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network podcast in environmental studies. My name is David Fauser. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Stephen Gray, who's a senior lecturer in imperial and naval history at the University of Portsmouth. His most recent book is Steam Power and Sea Power, Coal, the Royal Navy, and the British Empire, circa 1870 to 1914. Dr. Stephen Gray, welcome. Thank you very much. Uh, It's a pleasure to have you here, and I'm really looking forward to discussing this. And I wonder if you might start by telling us a little bit about your own personal background, uh, where you've studied in the past, how you ultimately came to this particular project. Yes, so um, I started... I suppose uh, my my undergraduate uh, in in South Wales in in Swansea um, and did my master's there in um, imperial and maritime history um, and then I, I did my PhD uh, between the University of Warwick and the National Maritime Museum, which is in in Greenwich in London, um, which was um, a fairly um, similar project, I suppose, to um, to, to how the book turned out. Um, so looking at um, the Navy in the age of steam, essentially, and and, and how um, the shift from, from sail to uh, being powered by coal um, really uh, had, had ramifications beyond just changing engines, essentially. Um, so I was... Um, yeah, so, so I did my PhD, um, finished that in, in 2014. Um, and since then, uh, I, I had a year-long lectureship uh, at, at Swansea, so, so back to where I did my undergraduate. Uh, and then I've moved to, to Portsmouth now, which is um, ideal, really, because it's where the, the Royal Navy is based. So uh, everything's on my doorstep uh, that I research. So it's quite a nice place to, to be. Um, so I've been there now. Uh, Two and a half years, so sort of settled in, I suppose. Now. Outstanding. And so, so this has been a long project. How, how did you start the project? How do you get interested in this particular topic, in the topic of, of coal and its role in the Royal Navy and the British Empire? Um, yeah, I mean, it's... Um... So as, as I said, I did my master's in, uh, in imperial and maritime history. So my background was in a similar field, I suppose. Um, and it was actually a project that came up um, uh, that, that um, my two supervisors had um, had, had got money from um, a, a, a grant for, essentially. Um, so it was a funded project that I applied for. Um, and I suppose it, it, it joined the two things that I was I was interested in, really, in, in the sea and, uh, and the British Empire, really. And, and I suppose as um the more i got into it the the more i was able to shape the project into the sorts of things that that i was particularly interested in um and um 
yeah, I think we'll go on to discuss why why I think the the, the, the book's important, obviously. But um, it allowed me to explore lots of different um, elements of, um, of 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 the empire, but also um, oceanic networks and 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 I suppose as well networks of um, raw materials as much as anything else. Um, and and by sort of starting with quite a um, a quotidian cheap um fuel how you could go from that to to explore much wider issues about uh you know, uh, the empire and the world in, in in this period uh could you i i guess this is the spot to to go to the argument itself which is uh really about the role of coal in the age of steam uh, which is a relatively short age i was i was surprised to find that uh, but could you, what do you, how would you sort of uh, outline the argument of the book as, as you see it, as you intended to, to come across? I mean, essentially the, yeah, as you said, it's, it's a fairly short period, really. Um, the, the, the adoption of, um, of steam power really only, um, you know, becomes, um, uh, I suppose accepted across um, across a large part of the fleet in, in the second half of the 19th century, and, and really by the start of the 20th century, we're, we're starting to see um, the beginning of oil power. Um, so yeah, it, it was quite a short period, um, but it's a crucial period for, for um, British history, and um, it's it's a period that um, I suppose many. Imperial historians would have see would see as um, the, the 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 high point of of European imperialism. Really, that the the, the period where um, you know, the, the 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 biggest part of um, imperial comp- uh, competition is going on, and um, and also you start to see the build up of of um, of, of British uh, naval power, um, which obviously reaches. Um, it, it's apogee in, in the 20th century in, in the Anglo-German naval race. So it's a period of immense change, and, and that sort of geopolitical um, change um, is also matched by an enormous growth in trade. Um, there's a tenfold increase in trade during that sort of 50, 60-year period. Um, most of it is British, most of it is maritime. So the Navy is enormously important to um to British power, um, ensuring British economic power. Um, so all of that background um, is, is crucial to understanding why that shift from sail to steam is so problematic and so uh, important to get your head around, I suppose, because what you're essentially doing is you're creating um, – a problem for your navy essentially because unlike when you're you're st- uh, sail powered you, you have to stop for fuel um and in this period it's it's pretty much once a week um uh, they're going to have to stop for fuel um which means if you're a worldwide power like like britain is in this period you have to make sure that there is somewhere for your ships to go and get fuel um, at any given moment. Um, so it creates a... Can we pause for a moment and, and consider uh, how 
you know, so you can say once a week. And I, I thought that was astonishing to learn how, how frequently it is. How far could a ship go in a week? That's a good question and one that there's not a, <laughs> a straight answer for. Um, I mean, p- part of the the um, the issues that they face really is that um, the way that the, the, the Royal Navy works is they are con- the, the the technology is constantly evolving in this period and and very quickly as well and what what happens essentially is when they launch a, a new ship it sort of creates a ripple effect of pushing older ships further away from britain so what what essentially happens is the newest ships um tend to be either in 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 home waters or the mediterranean the two most important parts they then go out to china and then to places like the pacific or or the south atlantic so what happens is those those ships sort of move further and further out so usually the pacific and south atlantic are the yeah, they're the last place with sail ships. They're the last place with um, coal-powered ships. So it de- it depends, really. Is it is it is a cop-out answer? Um, because at any given time, there's a there's a real range of different ships across the world, um, and you know, really, that has a huge effect on uh, you know how efficient the engines are, how much coal they can carry. What sort of speeds they go, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So um, it's very difficult to say those sorts of things. Um, another key consideration is that a lot of the time, because of the relative peace of this period, um, ships are, are tend to sort of go around about ten knots, so basically cruising speeds. If they then have to go up to full speed, and, and by the end of this period, we're talking over twenty knots, it's it's basically an exponential curve of um, of how much fuel is used so coal usage very much changes on on speed as well so um because naval ships obviously don't keep to to timetables in the same way as a as a trade ship might um their usage can go up and down and and that's part of the problem for britain as well is trying to work out how much coal needs to be in which place um because obviously if you face an emergency you might suddenly have 10 ships in one place that wouldn't usually be there so it, it's part of the difficulty of of, of um of moving to coal is ensuring that 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 um um you know that that supply is there whatever the the situation even in emergencies where you might suddenly have demand and so so creating a steam-powered Royal Navy then means not just building ships that, that are going to run on coal, but building an entire network of coal supplies, essentially creating like a, a kind of a material chain that connects coal mines, uh, coal production areas to the particular bases or stopping points that uh, British ships will need. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yes, and and um, I suppose that's that's really the um, what what the book tries to explore. Really, what what those um, the ramifications of, of of creating those networks does. Um, I mean, Britain has immense advantages in in this because uh, well, several um, advantages. It it has the best coal for the navy. Uh, in South Wales, and, and when I say the best coal for the navy, um, I suppose it, it sounds like an obvious point, but not all coal is the same, um, and the navy is looking for very specific qualities um, 
uh, for its ships. Yeah, can can you go into like the, what are the different qualities of coal, and and why was it that coal from South Wales was so much? Yeah, better? absolutely. I mean, I mean, firstly, you you want something which produces high power, um, but you want something that produces high power but doesn't burn too quickly because obviously you have a finite supply that you can carry. So you want efficiency as well. Um, You also don't want too many impurities in there because that affects both efficiency, but also um, creates black smoke. Um, And if you're a naval ship, you don't particularly want to be seen from a long way away. Um, So, and and also um, for example, in, in, um, you know, navigating, um, harbors and things if you have too much smoke it's very difficult to be able to actually see what's going on so there's several factors that make welsh coal um the best um and i mean the, the, i suppose another quality is, is is how easy it is to to work with um and yeah sort of how much what's called clinker uh which is essentially sort of ash and, and um residue um, it creates because that has to obviously be cleaned out. So if it has to be cleaned out a lot, that then creates extra work for those um, dealing with it. So there's lots of different qualities, um, but essentially what, what happens is they they do all these tests and realise that that actually the, the coal from South Wales is, is above all others. Um, and, and that's seen in the fact that it's used widely by other navies as well. Um, it's worth saying that they do discover in in New Zealand uh, another supply uh, in a place called Westport, uh, which is similar quality, but that the mine is um, well, it's a, it's a new mine essentially, so it takes a little longer to to, to come on stream, and it only really starts to um, uh, it only really about ten percent of of, of uh, naval fuel comes from from Westport. It's about ninety percent from Wales. Um, but what's quite interesting about that fact and, and going on, to, I suppose, to those those ramifications is the fact that because of that, you're exporting Welsh coal as far away as, uh, you know, places like Fiji, places like, um, you know, uh, China, places as far away as, as Vancouver, um, you know, looking at 14,000 nautical miles and enormous distances and also completely uneconomical distances. Uh, coal is not worth enough money to do that um, in, you know, for, for, for profit. So essentially the, the, the Navy is taking a, a big financial hit to make sure that that high-quality fuel is, is, is there. So it really is a matter of, you know, I suppose uh, we we you know we might call it something like incremental returns or, or you know those little things which would give the navy an advantage in in a battle situation the ability to go that little bit faster the ability to go that little bit further the ability not to be seen for example so it really is that crucial the difference uh, and you find in all sorts of documents explicitly stated that this is you know this is why we use this coal um we would not use others um so yeah absolutely uh that that that's really important and can can we can we spin off two issues there uh one is uh, i'm curious if we could consider this particular kind of coal relative to the broader coal powered kind of uh 
world of 19th century Britain, it, was this coal particularly expensive? Was it widely regarded as the highest quality sort of full stop? Was there some competition between uh, naval demand for this coal and other uses? And then the other way I'd like to spin this off is is to consider really uh, a major portion of the first part of the book, which is kind of the institutionalization of of simply knowing and and obtaining and managing this coal. And you can you can handle those two in any way that you'd like. Yeah, I mean it's it's worth saying. I mean the the point I made earlier about it being uneconomical um, means, of course, that for most maritime um, concerns, for example, things like um, you know po- postal um, concerns or or any sort of maritime trade, essentially, usually they go for the cheapest coal, um, unless there is a particular reason why they need to be particularly fast um so sometimes for example if you're looking at things like cruise liners um you know, the the you know pno or whatever they may use better quality coal because they want to go a bit faster they don't want dirty soot everywhere but but largely the cost means that they, they are not using um this coal they then tend to use it for example in railways um again for similar reasons um you know if if you wanted to make sure it was an express train or whatever um you may use it um but largely um you know most commercial concerns would would use the cheapest one they could get away with essentially because um most of the time they they didn't have those same um needs as a navy um so um generally um and and i off the top of my head haven't got the facts um but but certainly the admiralty is the biggest customer of the the south welsh um coal field um it, it it's the biggest single uh buyer of coal so so absolutely it, it's it's um it's it's the uh, the the particular concern that that really is driving um, that industry and and the prices because of its quality are particularly high. Um, there is competition um, certainly in the the earlier periods. Um, I suppose from about you know the eighteen forties to the eighteen eighties um, is the real period of, of of trials and they trial all sorts of coals. Um, from the northeast of England, um, it's particularly fierce rivalry, um, but also um, in places um, you know, like Australia, um, places like uh, North America, um, also um, you know have their coals trialed, um, and, and nothing really comes close to Welsh. Um, there is something you know they 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 do sort of agree that that the coal from than pennsylvania is is a similar kind but it's much more difficult to get to um to the sea essentially so it's 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 not as um feasible um and that's worth saying as well i I, I didn't mention it earlier but um i suppose moving on to the, the next question that that idea of control and and the other advantage that britain has is that because South Welsh coal is is such high quality and um, available in such high quantities as well, it's worth saying that the coal field um, there is a there is a myriad of different types of coal which are, are, are suitable for lots of different things. Um, the the infrastructure is already there, uh, both in terms of 
um, physical infrastructure, so things like railways, um, you know, ports, those sorts of things, and they develop through the period, but also knowledge networks, um, commercial networks. Um, so what, what happens is the Admiralty is able to utilise um, agents, essentially, to, to run the complicated um, procedures that, that it needs to. Uh, you know, we're talking... Um, just to give a picture, I suppose, of the complexity, uh, you know, the Admiralty is not buying from one colliery, it's buying from several at once. Um, that then has to be, you know, they have to buy that, that then has to be transported um, to the port, it then has to be transported from the ground uh, or, or the port to the ship, it then has to be shipped out, it then has to be unloaded at the other end. And all of these different processes involve different groups of people and different businesses. Um, so what the Admiralty does is it doesn't get involved at all uh, in, in taking control. It, it, it utilises agents uh, essentially to, um, to make sure that, that these processes happen. And this very much mirrors what it does in, in the 18th century um, in what, what's be- become known as a contract estate um, in terms of, you know, buying things like um, uh, food or beer or, uh, you know, the wood for ships tends to come from Britain's, um, you know, enormous uh, industrial power at that, at, at that time. Um, so, Britain has that advantage that, that that it can call upon its industry, which is world leading, and, and and its maritime trade, which is world leading. So it really has those advantages. Um, so the Admiralty is able to take advantage of those things um, to to make sure that um, yeah, essentially that the, the coal goes from the mine to the station, um, which is yeah, essentially what, what what it's trying to do. And you know, an important thing. I certainly find in uh, many studies of environmental history and, and others is, is the importance of knowledge and of, and of how, how different historical actors will sort of know and understand the materials or situations that they're working with. And, and you mentioned there's a series of trials to sort of work out the, the nature of this coal and what kind of coal it is. Can you tell us a bit more about those trials? And then, you know, when, when they take place, when it is that, that uh, the Royal Navy sort of decides like, okay, this is the kind of coal that we need. And if that has any broader effects on on this whole system, yeah, I mean, it's the the I suppose the idea of knowledge is is an important one, and it's worth saying that the the trials work in 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 two different ways. I suppose in 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 one way, it's a good way for the um, the Admiralty to you know, fairly obviously decide which fuel is best for its navy. Um, but on the other hand, it's also a key marketing tool for those that are chosen. Um, and there's, there's um, what's called the Admiralty List, uh, which is a list of, of, of suppliers which the Admiralty would buy from. It doesn't necessarily mean that they, they do buy from them, but they are of sufficient quality. And if you look in sort of trade directors of the period, that's sort of the number one thing that they will say. If they are Admiralty coal, that is, yeah, that is the highest quality that you can get. So it's worth saying it works, works in both both ways. And, and of course, if you don't have that, then that um, affects your business uh, because yeah, your, your competitors 
uh, are seen to be of higher quality. Um, I mean, the, the, the contrast, as I said, it start around the 1840s, really, um, but they carry on. Um, and, and I suppose one of the one of the main arguments that runs through um, the book is that really it's only the 1870s um, when we start to see um, you know, the first massless ships, so the first ships that are not hybrids, um, so sail and steam, that the Admiralty really starts to pay attention to the real issues it has around um, the need for coal. And, and that goes across um, you know, the need to protect coal, the need to make sure it's there, the need to make sure it's high quality. Um, and that's really where it starts to step up this, the, these trials and and really they carry on um, all through the period and they're constantly sending um, messages, for example, to um, uh, to um, na- naval um, officers or or, um, or governors in, in various British colonies, but also um, utilizing things like um, yeah the Royal Geographical Society, um, the the um, the, the mining institute, which is it's now at Imperial College, um, you know, when they're sending people out into the wider world, they're trying to get them to come back and say, you know, if there is coal there, can you send some back that we can test? So it carries on all the way through, and and it's a really what the Admiralty is trying to do is both save itself some money because if it can avoid having to send Welsh coal halfway around the, around the world then it helps it balance its books. Um, But also there's a worry that in a potential war, you know, what if we were cut off from Australia, for example? How are we going to make sure that the Navy can still operate? Um, So there is that real need. need And and again, it's using not just naval networks, but also wider imperial networks to try and find those things. but I think it's it's interesting in a, in a way because in a lot of imperial histories of this period, the navy seems somewhat absent, and, and I suppose part of of what this book's trying to do is say, well, actually, a lot of the knowledge coming back from the empire and the wider world is coming from from naval personnel, um, and you know a lot of the networks um, essentially are run by the navy or you know the the. You know, our naval ships, for example, carrying uh, carrying messages around. So um, I think, it, yeah, it speaks to a wider sort of imperial um, picture, really. Um, can Can I ask a, a, a point of clarification uh, about the coal itself? Is it simply the case that the South Wales coal was uh, was the only coal that was really suitable, like, or or could they burn other coal if if they needed to? It just wouldn't be as good. Uh, yeah, I mean, there is an issue on the, um, I suppose, that after it becomes established um, that um, it's the best kind of fuel to use, they tend to design the the, uh, the machinery to to work best with it. Um, but no, they, they do use, um, in times of emergency, I mean, there's a huge uh, strike in, in, in South Wales in 1898, which is you know, one of the major issues of relying on one source of coal essentially um and they do use other types of coal um but they try not to i mean the essentially i suppose in in a way the way that they think about this is that if they can't get enough welsh coal 
then they're still going to be using coal that is equivalent or better than their enemies. Um, and because they control so much of the world, essentially, either through uh, you know, empire or through informal um, uh, economic control, for example, in places like South America, they're able to um, you know, push out any potential rivals from those markets. So they can use other coal, um, but as you say, it, it tends to burn more quickly and it's not ideal really in, in terms of, um, you know, utilising and, and it's worth, you know, going back to, you know, these are cutting, cutting edge um, ships. These are, you know, millions of pounds, um, you know, probably now the equivalent of billions of pounds worth of um, investment. Um, you don't want to then hamstring them by, by using, you know, poor quality fuel that, that clogs up the engines and, you know, makes, makes the, the, the sort of the, the te- cutting edge technology really worth very little. So it's, um, yeah, I mean, it's like filling a racing car with, with your ordinary fuel for, for, uh, you know, your, your, uh, runabout it's you know it, it really is it, it yeah. really it really gets to a fascinating kind of uh a fascinating kind of you know wrinkle in the story that you tell in the book of of how they 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 sort of know that they're going to rely on coal and so the they begin to construct these knowledge networks they begin to look more widely for different kinds of coal conclude that no coal from south wales really is the best and then their engines become more and more dependent on it so, so it's like this sort of paradox of, of an expanding global trade network uh, of a larger, more powerful Navy, and yet they're increasingly reliant on really quite environmentally specific, you know, they, they really are reliant on the physical environment of South Wales for, for this whole system. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you do get, um, you know, for example, in, in the early 20th century, you do get these royal commissions into... Um, essentially how much coal is left Um, because that's the real worry I mean it's as you say it's a shockingly short amount of time really about half a century that we're talking about but even in the turn of the 20th century people are convinced that that coal power is going to last a long time still Um, that oil power really hasn't developed enough um, to, 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 to be challenging it for you know, uh, many decades to come. So there's all these sort of worries and scares about, well, hang on a minute, if if this is the case and we continue to use Welsh coal at this rate, are we going to be stuck in 10, 15 years? Um, so, yeah, that, th- there are those real worries about, as you say, utilising that specific um, area. Um, it's worth saying that, that this is all balanced out I suppose in in terms of its rivals and the fact that its rivals are also reliant on Welsh coal um, which becomes a a real issue for Germany in the war because it then has to go back to using inferior German coal uh, which is quite a difficult thing to do because you suddenly your ships don't go as fast or as far as they used to Um, so it's it's geographically specific, but it's also in Britain. So it always knows it's got control of that trade. 
um, unless it's invaded, essentially. And, and obviously, that's got, got ramifications far beyond what, what we're talking about. Um, so, so it's that control, I think, is really important. And I suppose one of the things that I sort of touch on at the end of the book is about that once they shift to oil, then all of these advantages that it's had in terms of the networks of knowledge and, and purchase and supply, essentially owning all the, all the places where you find the, the, the coal disappears because it's suddenly Britain has no oil. It's not, you know, North Sea oil is not discovered till much, much later. Um, and essentially it loses all those advantages. Um, and, yeah, this is this is coupled with with uh, you know Britain's global decline anyway, but it's certainly a factor within that. Um, so yeah, it, it's it's really as yeah the geography and I suppose the the geology is is really important part of it. Um, and and Britain's immensely lucky that yeah, essentially it it, it has it on its on its doorstep. Um, now, can we can we follow the coal then from South Wales out into into the the broader maritime and imperial world? How does it get out there, um, and and what sort of problems do they encounter in shipping coal all over the world? Yeah, I mean, as I said, it's it tends to be um, um, arranged by coal agents essentially. Um, so. They're utilising the existing trade and existing trade networks and relationships. Um, it's immensely difficult to to find very much on uh, sort of archivally on on the, the specifics of this. Uh, most of the, the the companies are long gone, um, and the Admiralty, in their infinite wisdom, um, have um, thrown away all of the um, contracts. Um, for coal um, from this period. So in terms of specifics, um, yeah, not very many, but uh, essentially w- how it works is for, for many places, um, you know, there are existing um, coal networks essentially because British maritime trade is global. Um, so you're sending um, coal from South Wales to places for example, like uh, the Suez Canal anyway, because that's where British um, steam trade is going. Further away, you're starting to have to, uh, yeah, these agents are, are starting to have to um, you know, essentially make bespoke routes uh, for the Navy. Um, you wouldn't usually, it, from a commercial perspective, send um Welsh coal much further than, than the Mediterranean because it's just completely uneconomical. Um, and, and when they do that, what they try and do is is try and put it into another um, trading network. So, for example, um, they 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 put it in things like grain networks in in South America or um, nitrates. So they'll send coal out one way and come back with with something of more value. They may still make a loss on that, but you know, they're, they're trying to, to, I suppose, um, make those as minimal as possible by, by coming back with something that's, that's, you know, not of, um, as little value as the coal, but, um, it's, it's, I suppose it's instructive on the importance of the quality. The fact that time and time again, when questioned by, uh, by governments about the expense of doing this, they come back and say, 
if we want a navy that is world leading, that is able to do all the things we're asking of it, this is what has to happen. So, um, yeah, it's essentially utilizing commercial networks, but further afield, having to, I suppose, create these bespoke networks that um, that bring in other trades um, to try and subsidize essentially the, the the costs. And much of the coal is shipped out on sail or uh, by by sail driven ships. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, it's it's, it's quite a, a I suppose a. a an irony, really, that um, especially much further when, when we're talking much further out. Um, yeah, even in 1914, you're seeing sail ships taking out coal um, to places like South America, which seems slightly perverse. But um, as I'm saying, it's it's not um, it's not a rush to get it out there. Generally, uh, once you have the um, yeah, the, the the knowledge in place of how much needs to go out at certain points. It, it doesn't really matter how how quickly you're sending it out, and and it really is. In it's I suppose in one way in the enormous quantities the Admiralty's buying it is quite expensive, but in terms of sending stuff around the world, it really is bulk commodities. It, it's really not a high value trade, so you don't want to be sending it out in fast steamships because it's just too expensive to do so um yeah you might as well send it out in a sail ship and um yeah there is a level of irony there i think but um yeah it, it it's um it seems remarkably backward but 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 that that was the most efficient way to do it and the, the most economical way to do it and the quantities we're talking about are truly enormous if i recall the numbers uh hms dreadnought uh 1906 uh, it's main. It's it could store twenty nine hundred tons of coal, and it would use about three hundred a day. Is that is that about right? Yeah, and and, and you're talking huge numbers of ships as well. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, it, it's difficult to get exact numbers because the documents no longer exist. But you can you can look at, as you say, these sorts of these sorts of figures, the size of bunkers, and the the use. Uh, you know how much they're, they're using, and you know, put it next to how many of these types of ships are there? Um, yeah, and and, and yeah, it, it, it's huge numbers, uh, really, really um, enormous numbers. But you're talking about, um, you know, I've, I've, today I've been writing something about the uh, the Welsh coal industry. So yeah, you're talking about some, uh, you know, an industry that in 1913 in, employs 1.1 million people. It's a huge industry. Um, yeah, it, it really is a huge part of the British economy generally. So, um, yeah, it's, it's easy to forget in our modern world, and especially in Britain, which is you know, moving more and more away from coal, um, how big a part of that economy and how much of Britain relied on coal, essentially, and, and, and particularly the Royal Navy. Um, so, yeah, it's an, it, it's... I suppose it seems a bizarre topic, but the more you look at that period, the more important you see that coal is. Essentially, it's you know we we talk about oil these days as that sort of you know the global commodity, and and all of the wars and things that happen over that. Well, coal is the equivalent in in the, in the late nineteenth century, essentially. And once the coal is is being shipped out into the rest of the world, there has to be storage facilities and essentially coaling stations. Can you tell us about those, the the major ones, and 
what sorts of what sorts of places these were uh, and the sorts of environments that are effectively created through through the storage of coal there. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's it's again another another advantage the British have is that um, they have all these um, places that they they obtain by various treaties in their their wars of empire in in the uh, in the eighteenth and early nineteenth century. In places like the Falkland Islands and Saint Helena, which actually before the coming of steam. They're not really sure what to do with, um, and they realise that essentially, as you say, they can make these chains of coaling stations. Um, and there's a mixture of, of, of stations. There's, there's commercial stations, um, for example, places like Port Said or, or, or Hong Kong, where you know they're major trade trading places where there would be coal anyway because there are. Um, you know, steamships for, for commerce. And the Admiralty in those cases would have its own stacks that were for solely for the use of the Navy. Uh, other places like, you know, Gibraltar or, or Simonstown, which is essentially just round from Cape Town, are naval bases. Um, and, and, yeah, essentially that 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 would be a naval supply. Um, so it's a, it's a mixture of different um, different types of, of, of places. Um, and largely, they move away from buying coal on the on the open market from the 1870s onwards because they realise that this is quite an expensive way to do things. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's it, it's it's a variety of different places essentially. Many of them are fairly small places, um, but but again, some of them like Hong Kong are enormous trading centres. So, what what you start to to see really is is an enormous variety of of places that that the navy is stopping um and it's worth making the point that we we started off talking about how you know they'd have to stop for coal every seven days um this is much more regularly than a sail ship would would go into a port um and as well because the advantages that steam gives a ship, you know, it can travel in straight lines. It's not relying on tides or, or wind um, to, to get to places. It can go much faster. What what happens is that increasingly you can essentially station ships around one particular place and then send them out to do things rather than have them sort of generally patrolling around. Um, also, of course, Britain's primacy means that it also doesn't really need to because it doesn't have a, a major rival. Um, so what happens is increasingly you're seeing ships stationed on these harbours. And, and I did a few calculations and it's between about 70 and 80% of time um, that a, the, 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 a sailor would be uh, on a particular commission, usually about three years, it would be on land. Uh, they would be on land. Um, so this is including, you know, doing repairs or, or whatever. But but a lot of the time they are in these small spaces um, that, that become really um, multicultural spaces um, because, of course, they're also places of of labour. Um, so another one of the things that I look at is, you know, it's all well and good saying that the coal's there, but how are you actually going to get it onto the ship? So particularly in places, um, you know, I suppose what might be termed the, the you know, the, the colonial empire where 
it, you know, not not the the white settler colonies, but places um, in Southeast Asia, for example, in Africa, in the Caribbean. Um, you know, they they would become places where people would would move to for work. Um, so increasingly, these pla- become places um, where you have inadequate housing, for example, disease becomes rife, people are exploited with very low wages. Um, And because of the presence of sailors, you also see an increasing reliance on their money. Um, So this this could be things like washing facilities, it could be food, uh, it could be a place to stay, alcohol, but also things like prostitution. And and, and in in many of these places, um, you know, things like venereal disease become rife. Um, so it's, it, it really changes those environments um, because they suddenly become um, very important centres of, um, of, 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 um, of labour and, and of commerce uh, and of exchange. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it completely changes those places. And, and they really become nodes in a kind of broader fossil fuel energy network, which is, you know, to, to a considerable degree, facilitating a the, the broader globalization of commerce in, in the late 19th century. Yeah, absolutely. And, and a node is a nice way, nice way to put it, actually. And, and I mean, it, in a way, it reflects that the British Empire more generally. I mean, when I teach about the British Empire, I yeah, often show the the famous map with all the bits painted pink, and and the general understanding of the empire is that these pink bits are the most important bits. And in fact, what I would argue is really what you're looking at is maritime commerce. And so, because you're looking at that, those nodes around the world the commerce centres, but also the naval centres, are really the crucial parts. And that's what the government are are often more interested in, is how do we defend these routes? Um, And and as you say, those nodes become crucial because that's where the Navy um, essentially have to to go to to pick up the fuel to be able to defend um, what is the lifeblood of the empire, which is maritime trade. So, yeah, absolutely. I think it's really it's a really nice way to think of it as, as those nodes. Now, once, once they have shipped coal <clears throat> in sailing ships out to these various nodes, once the fuel is there at, at a coaling station someplace, is it basically just kind of a static thing that just sits there and waits to be used? I mean, one of, one of, this is one of the big problems really, because when, when we're talking about a, a global network, we're talking about lots of different climates and, and certainly in, in, tropical climates of which you know large parts of the empire um would be within the tropics um you know coal does not just um stay the same if you leave it out in in damp and and warm conditions and the real issue is is it starts to degrade and it starts to lose um its calorific value so the, the power within it essentially um so they're real conundrum for the the Admiralty is to make sure that there is enough coal in these places that should there be an emergency for example that a ship turned up out out of the blue there would be enough for it but at the same time you don't want to be sending all this high quality expensive coal out to Sierra Leone for example or, or, or Barbados and it's basically just you know destroying uh, being destroyed by the weather so it's really trying to balance 
the two needs really and it's what's quite interesting is is that it's it's really the the 1880s which is is a long time into uh, having a steam navy that they really start to think about even simple things like putting marks on uh on on bunkers to say when they need to order more coal essentially or you know the 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 station um the, the person in charge of a certain station sending back a return to to the Admiralty to tell them how much is being used, um, and, and it's really interesting when you read these things because you sort of think, do they really know anything about what's going on in these places? Because the sorts of information they're asking for seem very basic, um, even to the extent that there are questions about well, what sort of coal are you using, um, which you think after all the importance they put by it, they really should know. Um, and so that, that really is a big shift that you see in the 1880s, that really they start to tra- take much more control and really start to try and build a knowledge of what's going on and, and build that knowledge in London, um, not just amongst what we might call the, the men on the spot who are hugely important before this because they're essentially running the show. Um, but there is that, that sort of move, I suppose, towards really trying to to make sure um, they know what's going on, but also that there is a sufficient supply and it's not going to waste as well. Under under the most extreme conditions, what would the life of coal be in in a uh, place like Barbados? Are, are we talking that it would degrade and become, you know, less effective over the course of a couple of years or a couple of months? Or let's see, it's a good question, um, and ex- again, exact answers might be quite difficult. But um, I mean, they tend to in Britain um, they talk about not using coal that's over a year old. Um, so the climate in Britain is obviously very different to somewhere like Barbados. Um, but they try, I mean, one of the solutions that they use is by using um, what they call patent fuel, which is very similar to what they use on the railways, which is essentially to take the waste product of um, of, of, of coal um the smaller bits that break off essentially make them into bricks which they can then store very easily um and they keep a a six-month supply of that um, at many of these tropical stations so i think that may give an indication of how long that coal lasts probably probably we're talking a few months um but that patient fuel is more expensive than coal and also has issues with um um eye and skin irritation so that the, the, they're not particularly keen on it the the, uh, the people dealing with it um so it's not a perfect solution but it's one of the solutions that they come up with because it degrades yeah, literally within it within six months in these places and wow and so the patent fuel i think is a is a great is a great way to see how then this this network of fossil fuel energy that powers the royal navy is spatial but also temporally situated that is it you know it, 
it, uh, it exists in time in some very real senses that, that the fuel will degrade. And then finally, it is, it is very much a human network as well, because as you mentioned, it, it causes these problems with things like skin irritation. And I think that's a good way into the labor that, that goes into this at, at every step. And labor is a, a major portion of this. Can you, can you describe the labor at different, different points? Yeah, I mean, it, uh, absolutely. I, I don't, in, the, in the book, I don't go into the actual mining of the coal, but of course, that's a, a hugely labor-intensive um, thing in itself. Um, but I suppose one of the really fascinating things that, that I found about this is that, as you say, it's nearly all human labor all the way through the period. Um, and one of the reasons for this is that um, even in places where they install hydraulic cranes to, to move the coal about, the huge problem is that the, the ships get bigger and bigger and um the they the numbers of ships gets ever larger um so what happens is you can have a hydraulic crane for example in portsmouth but you can only let, get one ship in and increasingly in some harbors you can't even do that because ships too big to get into the harbor um so what you have to do is send out um what are called lighters so essentially just um ships with coal in them um out to the anchorage point uh, and send several out um, to them. Uh, and, and then you're essentially using a simple winch system between the ship and that lighter um, to, to get the coal on board um, because essentially it, it, because there's too many ships to do um, with, a, with a single crane. So it remains... Um, in, in many places, uh, uh, a, a, a wholly um, uh, human uh, endeavour. And, and where it's done, as I described by Leiter, um, it's generally done by the sailors themselves, um, purely because it's, it's, it's easier, but also it's a, a, a nice free uh, source of labour. Um, where labour is, is plentiful and and cheap, um, which is tends to be, um, yeah, the, the 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 colonial empire um, where you have indigenous um, labour forces, which um, are often exploited with low wages and and, and awful working conditions. Um, you 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 see much more of uh, you know that indigenous labour being used, um, you know, essentially walking up planks onto the ship often with the baskets of, of coal on their heads in some places um particularly the caribbean zanzibar um women are involved in japan you have women and children involved in these things um and it really is a, a fairly horrific um uh process really um uh, you know there's there's plenty written by the sailors themselves about how how horrendous it is um but these indigenous populations were doing ship after ship after ship um you know carrying these these enormous baskets of coal so you know it, it really is a um a laborious um process you know we're talking maybe 50 kilo bags of, of, of coal being moved around um it's of course also filthy uh you know plenty of dust goes around um and and increasingly because of the need to do it quickly um accidents abound as well um you know it, it it's certainly not unusual to find um deaths occurring uh in, in these uh 
during these the, the, this loading of the coal because they if if the 50 kilo bag of coal falls on top of you uh you know it it's it's going to cause serious injuries so you know what's quite interesting is you, is you never really come across the accounts of, of this happening to indigenous people which perhaps reflects more how important they were seen as as, as being um rather than how often it happened because it it must have been a regular occurrence for for those those people as well it was just that they they were seen as yeah essentially tools for the use of of the navy rather than sort of individual people uh, in the same way that sailors would be right and so the source base for actually understanding the indigenous experiences of work here is quite slim but it's much more robust for the sailors themselves uh, who, as you say, get get sort of roped into this endeavor, uh, and it, it basically a weekly thing for for the crew. Can you tell us about what what they thought of it, how they how they dealt with this particular task? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it it's it's widely disliked. I think is the is the is the easiest way to to uh, to put it. Um, and, and often it's um, you know through reading um, sailors' diaries, particularly, you get an impression that the worst thing about being a sailor is either loading the coal onto the ship or cleaning up afterwards. Um, and it's usually sort of a, a, a toss up between the two. Um, and I suppose the ways in which that they try and uh, alleviate, I suppose, the the the, the pain of the, uh, of the of calling so often is is to try and find these sort of coping mechanisms. And um, it's quite interesting that the the Royal Navy is, is pretty much the only navy that I've come across that that everyone is involved in calling. Um, and it may be that you know, for example, the commanding officer is only involved in making sure everything is going on, but it's not a case of only the lower deck are doing it. Um, but you also see things like um, the marine band would be on board playing tunes to try and cheer them up. They were allowed to wear um, ridiculous costumes uh, while they were coaling. So you see these these great photographs of them dressed up in um, in cricket whites or dressed as the prime minister or, or whatever as a you know sort of a, a fun way. Um, to, to get through the time, inevitably, often there is an element of cross-dressing as well, um, which is a, a familiar um, thing for, for sailors to do. Um, another key thing, um, and, and it's very much encouraged by the Navy, is, is the, this sense of competition and, and the, the issue of mobilisation and, and the ability for a ship to essentially go in, coal and come back out as quickly as possible um, in, in wartime. It, yes, it's an obvious um, advantage so they're encouraged really to try and do this calling as quickly as possible and and what 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 happens is that you get rivalries between different ships as to who can have the highest rate of of tons per per hour essentially um and this fits into that that sort of wider competition that you see in sporting events and things like that but what it what it does is it it places a real pride um, in in the act of of loading this coal and and it really is it really speaks to these ideas of of masculinity and um, pride and discipline I think because the way that sailors talk about for example breaking records there's there's an immense um, satisfaction and and often 
it's something that appears, for example, in in newspapers and published books. Uh, you know, you get um, telegrams from the from the admiral, for example, congratulating them on on breaking um, breaking records. You see um, photographs of of uh, of them with their with a blackboard with their their record breaking um, calling rate in front of them. So it's a really interesting, I suppose, glimpse into that idea of of masculinity and and also naval discipline and, and how they see themselves as you know these these um i suppose um yeah efficient masculine um workers really um uh, and and sometimes this takes on a racial element and and they talk about how much better than um uh you know the the, the indigenous heavers in in Africa they are because they're not lazy or they're not, um, you know, they, they don't always want to take breaks, et cetera, et cetera. You know, they have naval discipline, which, you know, another race would not be able to deal with. So there, there becomes that sort of racial element to it as well, um, as well as that sort of masculinity. And one point I thought you made that was absolutely fascinating is how once the Royal Navy had had switched to oil, you started to see a, a kind of a retrospective view of coal that reinforced this notion of masculinity as though they, they could sort of look back on it and say, boy, that was terrific when, you know, we were manly sailors working with manly coal. Yeah. I think, I think that's, that's, that's an interesting point. And, and I mean, most of them, uh, the accounts you see, they, they sort of talk about, they, they wish for the day when, when coal would no longer be um, the fuel. But yeah, as you say, you do come across these accounts that sort of, it, they talk about, yeah, as you say, the, the sort of the masculine element to it. Um, and, and it's interesting, I suppose, to think about, um, you know, you, you've moved away from a, a period where you have sail ships which have very specific uh, roles aboard, uh, you know, they, they they had the the men that, that dealt with sails, the men that went up rigging, for example, and these very sort of masculine, skilled pursuits. So in a way, this this calling allows them to see themselves in the same light, I suppose, because it's a it's a very physical, very um, muscular job. Um, which you don't really get with oil. So again, it's that sort of continuation from almost the sail navy, I think, in terms of um, that sort of masculine um, um, ideal of, of what a sailor was. I think. Yeah, it's it's a fascinating work, and and I think to to wrap up, I I have two two questions to ask. Uh, one is. If we were to consider, broadly speaking, the environmental history of the world, of the British Empire uh, in the late 19th century, I think a, a common perception is that coal is the sort of mo- single most important element of the 19th century global industrial revolution. And one thing I find fascinating about this book is that it shows that, like, yes, that's true in some real senses and that there's a real environmental specificity to this coal. It must be certain kinds of coal. It must be handled and sort of worked with in certain ways. So there are deeply specific spatial characteristics to it. And yet at the same time, mm-hmm. the the it comes with its own wrinkles. That is only certain kinds of coal will do. Mm-hmm. Uh, the labor is done by hand in many cases. The coal itself is shipped by sale in in most cases. So there's a fascinating, uh, like sort of yes and no aspect to the centrality of coal, uh, 
broadly speaking, in the late 19th century. Would you say that that's, do you agree with that assessment? Or do you have more to add to that? Yeah, I I think I think that's, that's, um, yeah, that's a really interesting way to look at it. And and I think, I suppose what I find very interesting about it is that from a naval perspective, often it's seen in a very Whiggish way of, you know, it, it, it made yeah, ships faster. It it meant that you could have iron ships. It meant that you could have uh, you know bigger guns aboard, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, and it doesn't necessarily think about all of those infrastructural and um, environmental factors, which cause a lot of problems and, and labour as well. Um, and I suppose on a, on another in another sense is that in histories of um, I suppose, yeah, uh, both mobility, but also mobility of uh, of material items. Um, often, we we think about the the really sort of high profile um, things that move around, things yeah, high value um, silk, yeah, tobacco, those sorts of things, um, rather than the very sort of quotidian stuff that that. Essentially, made the world go round. Um, you know, the, not just coal, but things like um, iron ore or copper ore, or you know, those sorts of things that were crucial to to the British economy, but lack that sort of um, excitement. I suppose that um, that perhaps you know, the, the gold or silver or, or diamonds or jewels and uh, those sorts of things that that sort of cachet that they have. So, I think in a way. One of the things that I'd like to, I suppose, inspire in people is that things that can seem very dull and very boring and, and very sort of quotidian actually are hugely important and, and can be hugely important and have ramifications far beyond, you know, the economic, this is how much was sent here, this is how much was sent here. Yeah, really, they, they have enormous effects all over the world and um you know, coal is, is a good example of, of of how that 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 happens i think as a scholar of wheat flour and bread i could not agree more <laughs> with, that, with that assessment now one final question before i let you go um what kind of future research do you have in mind what are you working on now um i'm working on a, a few things um inevitably um and uh, one of the things that I suppose the next big project um, that, that that I'll be doing um, is looking at um, particularly um, the sorts of things that sailors are sending back from these these stations that they're they're uh, based at, um, particularly um, around the empire. And, and one of the things which I sort of came across while writing the book was how much of this is about. Um, both environment um but also um animals um so one of the things i've been interested in recently is is thinking about the relationship between sailors and animals and and what that tells us about the way that they view the world um so in in many different ways um but 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 particularly in in terms of things like exoticness um you know what that might tell us about what they think of um various places around the empire um and and also the way that that the many of these things come back to a domestic audience and and shape the way that they see the empire as well so um it's really sort of 
trying to understand the role that these, I suppose, yeah, um, natural aspects um, of of the uh, the empire that that are brought back in by various means, uh, how they affect the imagination of what the empire is and and what British power is in the wider world. Um, so it's still very much in the the early stages, but but particularly that's. I suppose where where I'm going at the moment. Well, it sounds like a terrific topic, and we wish you all the best in that research, and we look forward to to hearing more about it in the future. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Dr. Gray. It was an absolute pleasure. Once again, the book is Steam Power and Sea Power: Coal, the Royal Navy, and the British Empire, 1870 to 1914. Thanks very much. My pleasure. 